We're excited to uh, kick off our new series in the book of Genesis. Hope you're looking forward to that as well. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm sure you all would agree over the past two years we have studied the person and work of Jesus at length, right? We've navigated through the Gospel of John over a year and a half. We worked through uh, the book of Ephesians, and certainly Christ uh, was at center stage during that study as well. And now we move our way to an Old Testament book. And uh, oftentimes we, in our minds, can create a stark dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament that somehow... Uh, the people are different, the purpose is different, that somehow things just are altogether different. But in reality, just as Hebrews 1.3 tells us that as we study the person work of God in creation, the beginning of the age, that it is who? The exact imprint of Christ himself. And so we certainly can take what we have learned about Jesus right into our study in the book of Genesis. And this morning, we're excited to kick that off. So, is the Old Testament and the New Testament really that different altogether, right? Um, I want to make the statement, and hopefully we'll see this throughout the study of Genesis, that really we're going to look for Jesus in the book of Genesis. All the beauty and the majesty of the cross, His shed blood, and salvation that is through His gift of his life will certainly be present in the book of Genesis and is all through the Old Testament itself. We're going to see that story of redemption unfold as God's plan to rescue this fallen world that is riddled with sin. And we're going to celebrate that work that Jesus does on the cross that we'll celebrate here in just next Sunday through our recognition of Easter, Resurrection Sunday. So as elders, as we came to the end of our study of Ephesians, we had a lot of different options that we evaluated, a lot of different books and studies that we could have gone to that we thought would be very valuable and beneficial to the church. But ultimately, we couldn't shake this reality that we needed to go to the book of, of Genesis. Uh, I think in many ways, we tried to avoid it. Uh, we thought, man, that's a, that's a big book. It's, it's a long book, and certainly will be there for a number of months uh, hopefully not a number of years, uh, but we'll certainly be there for a while. And we're going to anchor into this, uh, this study of Genesis, and we're excited about it. The Spirit, I believe, is in it, and it kept driving us back to this book of Ephesians. So the more we considered the possibilities of this study, the more we became excited and resolved and truly convicted that Genesis, right now, uh, this is exactly what God desired for our church uh, to take this next step in our teaching and preaching ministry at Liberty Hills. So a lot has changed over the last couple of years at Liberty Hills. Some things look a little bit different. Uh, some things in our constitution and our name and how we structure leadership certainly rise to the top as far as some of the change that you may have realized over the last couple of years. But in the midst of some of that change came a recommitment to the priority of expositional teaching and preaching. By expositional preaching, we simply mean the verse-by-verse -verse explanation and application 
of God's word. We approach scripture in that way, not just because we think that that's an easy way to preach, but we approach it that way by conviction. We believe that that is the way that scripture should be approached. So now as we jump into an Old Testament book, there's going to be some things that we come up against that are going to be challenging, that are going to be difficult to explain, that are uh, that we're going to have to wrestle with together as we work our way through this book of Genesis. And the beauty of expositional teaching is that we can't avoid some of the challenges and difficulties that we find in Scripture. We can't just say we're going to skip over chapter 8 uh, in Genesis, and Dave Welch has that one already nabbed, uh, so be looking forward to that one. We're not going to um, you know, sidestep any challenges Uh, that might come up, we desire to seek to use the Word of God to reconcile those challenges in the Word of God. And so whether you realize it or not, right here today in our generations that, that make up Liberty Hills Bible Church, we have a lot of information about God's Word, more so than any time in the history of mankind. Just at my house, on my shelves, I've got hundreds of hardback books. I've got a Bible software that has literally thousands of books at my fingertips that I can study. And we know a lot about the Word of God, but when it comes down to actually living it out and taking that truth and confronting a culture and society that is in conflict and tension with that truth, many times we feel inadequate and ill-equipped. And so as we work our way through this study... Our desire and our hope is that we would be equipped with the Word of God, understand the Word of God, and then we would take that truth to a world that desperately needs to know that truth. The fact of the matter is this. We live in a very consumer-driven, fast-paced, I'm going to use some big words here, postmodern, narcissistic, secular, and progressive society. Are those intimidating words to anybody out there? They are to me, if I'm honest. That's, that's the society and the culture that we live in. It's postmodern, it's narcissistic, it's secular, and it's progressive in their understanding of the world, in their understanding of religion, in their understanding of humanity and sexuality, and how we relate to each other in this fallen world. And many times in our feelings of inadequacy, instead of engaging the world, what do we do? We, we pull back and we crawl into our little safe little Christian church bubble, and we work through a series, and we feed our own knowledge and understanding, and we give hearty amens of agreement, but we never take that truth and its reality to a lost world. And so we don't engage in the conversations of our culture. Where did I come from? Why do I exist? What's my purpose in life? All those age-old questions that we've all been confronted with at some point in our life are tackled right here in the book of Genesis. And we have an opportunity to give answers to a world that is grasping for answers, that is grasping for truth and looking for truth. Whether they like it or not, they're seeking to fill a void of truth in their life with something or something, right? Or someone. At the end of the day, God's word has answers because it is truth. So whether you've taken a college philosophy 101 class or not, you've asked these questions at some point in your life. Maybe somebody in your household, one of your children, a grandchild, are going to come to you at some point in their life and 
ask these age-old questions. And our desire and our hope is that we will have answers from where? God's Word, the Bible. Because it is our only source of truth. And so, friends, we're going to tackle topics such as marriage and gender and sexuality, suffering, creation, evolution, and so much more through this study of Genesis. Do you need to know more about those topics? Do you need to be equipped with what God's Word says about those topics so that you can have truthful answers to a world that will challenge your beliefs? Absolutely we do. So Genesis, by way of its title, is a book of what? What does Genesis mean? Beginnings, right? It's a book of beginnings. But not just any beginnings. This is a book of the beginning. Right? This is, again, the source of absolute truth. The words that are recorded here in Genesis are God's inspired, inerrant record of the history of the beginnings of man. So you will see as we approach this book from that perspective that the book of Genesis is not just a story, it's not just an optional beginning to the history of mankind, but rather it carries with it the full weight of the inspired truth of God's word. Do you believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, the purpose of Liberty Hills Bible Church is what? To make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. This study through Genesis and our understanding of this book of beginnings, the beginning of mankind and God revealing himself to mankind is foundational to our ability to grow in our understanding and maturity and our faith. So it's our desire to connect those two purposes together. So our goal, our prayer, and our task at hand is what? To continue to trace out the story of redemption through the personal work of Jesus Yes, even in the Old Testament. You see, as much of the New Testament looked back to the person and work of Jesus as the hope of salvation, the Old Testament, and specifically even Genesis, will look forward to the person and work of Jesus as the hope of their salvation. So as we looked back over the past few years of our teaching and preaching ministry here at Liberty Hills Bible Church, Dave is the most tenured member here at Liberty Hills among the elders, just over 11 years. I've been here 10 years, Andy, nine years. We came to this um, shocking realization that over that time, we couldn't really put our finger down on an actual series or study that we went through an Old Testament book, verse by verse, expositionally. And that's a problem, right? So we're hopeful that we can write that ship and that we can show a, certainly a cohesion, a collaboration uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament in tracing out that storyline of redemption. Let's open in a word of prayer this morning and we'll dive into our text and our introduction to the book of Genesis. Father, we thank you for your word. We love you. Uh, my heart is, is full and, and heavy this morning. Uh, with just the, the weight of, of handling your word and rightly dividing it um, and communicating it effectively and, and concisely. So, Father, I pray that you would 
use your spirit to um, guard my words, that I would speak only that which what I should, and uh, you would keep me from speaking that which I shouldn't. Uh, I pray for even those here this, this morning that are under the sound of your word, uh, that we would be attentive hearers. We have an active participation to engage in this morning, Father, that we would be um, not just concerned about expositional teaching, but we would desire to be expositional hearers, um, considering the word and, and, and considering its implications on my life and desiring to apply that uh, for your glory, Father. And so I pray that you would do that work, um, that you would take your word, you would plant it deep into our hearts and our minds, and that it would bear fruit. Father, I pray that uh, it would not fall on hard, stony ground, that it would not be trampled upon, that it would not be choked out by the thorns this morning, but it would take root and grow. And Father, that's your desire for us. But Father, we uh, simply need to obey, to not just be a hearer of your word, but to be a doer also. So Father, I pray even as we kick off this uh, series through the through the uh, book of Genesis, that you would do a great work in stretching and growing and understanding our knowledge of you, our understanding of who we are and its implications on our life because of sin and the gift of, of a Messiah and the hope of a Messiah that will be to come. And so, Father, I pray that you would do a work that I can't do, that Andy or Dave can't do, that we collectively as elders, we cannot manufacture anything as far as fruit that would remain from this study. But Father, you can. And I pray that you would do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. So my goal this, this morning is to introduce this book of Genesis. And uh, I'm going to give a, just a word of, of warning so that you can be sure to sit up attentively into your seat and, and to be ready to hear. Uh, this ended up kind of morphing into a little bit more of, of a technical sermon that I anticipated it to be, right? So um, there's not going to be a lot of necessarily exposition. We're going to cover one verse this morning, um, verse number one. Uh, but we're going to talk a lot of background and understanding of how we should approach an Old Testament book like Genesis, what should be our interpretive approach and model and method as we uh, take many months uh, to work our way through it? We want to give a collective agreement that this is how we are going to approach uh, this book. And so my ask is that you hang with me as we get through this introduction and as we introduce this first verse of chapter number one. And I pray that God would, would do a work this morning. So the question is this, what is our, our hermeneutic? Which is simply what? It's a method of interpretation. So what will our hermeneutic, our method of interpretation be as we work our way through the book of Genesis? We are going to approach this book, the book of Genesis, from a historical and grammatical approach, which simply means that we approach the meaning of a given text with a what? A literal interpretation. As you consider all the different ways that you can look even at the first two chapters of Genesis in the creation account, there are many, many different theories and approaches uh, to what this text actually means. And so at Liberty Hills Bible Church, we want to be sure to have a historical, grammatical approach to this text, meaning we're going to approach it literally. 
We're going to let the text mean what it says. Nothing more, nothing less, all right? So that literal interpretation is always viewed in light of what its context and its literary, literary genre. What do I mean by literary genre? Somebody tell me some different genres that we have in Scripture. What are they? Poetry, yeah, those would be what the Psalms certainly would fall into that, that poetry genre, right? In, in the Psalms, uh, they use very vivid, what, figurative language, right? We have Psalm 42, verse 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's figurative, right? And that's often a literary tool that will be present in the genre of poetry. What other genres do we have out there? Historical, certainly, yeah. Historical narratives. Um, that would be Genesis, we would say, would be an historical narrative. What else is out there? Yeah, the prophets, good. What else? Any others jump out to you? Wisdom literature, right? That's going to be Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. We have prophecy, the Gospels, the Epistles. These are literary genres. So any book must always be interpreted through the lens of its literary genre. So Genesis should be viewed and understood through the simple lens of a historical narrative. So under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have been given a careful and accurate and historical account of the beginnings of mankind. This is what Genesis is. All right? Do we agree with that? Uh, this is how we will approach our understanding and interpretation of this book as we work our way through it. So in order to arrive at a historical and grammatical approach to Genesis, we must be sure to read and preach this text. I'm going to use another bigger word, and I'm sure many of you know it, but exegetically. Right? It's important that we deploy exegesis in our study, in our understanding of the book of Genesis. So we've got hermeneutic, we've got exegesis. So hang with me. These are important words, and I want us to understand them and their importance in how we approach this book of Genesis. So again, this is how we understand as we form again the, the guide rails that will keep us on track to understanding rightly the meaning of Genesis. As you consider all the different theories that are out there, the day-age theory, theistic evolution, a 24-hour punctuated theory, they're all kind of different evolutionistic ideas that have been tried to be squeezed into a biblical framework of God's word and those have allowed, been allowed to exist. Why? Because they haven't approached Genesis from the proper interpretive method. The hermeneutic is off. And so we're going to use historical, grammatical, literal approach and we're going to deploy exegesis to ensure that we stay on track to that end. So what is exegesis? What is it? Anybody have an idea? I know it's Sunday morning. It's okay. What's exegesis? It's a compound word, right? Ex meaning what? Out of Jesus meaning to study, to lead, to guide. So we have what? The study out of the text, right? We have eisegesis, which is the opposite of that. Ice meaning what? Into Jesus meaning study, right? So many people will approach Genesis through the lens of eisegesis and they will read into the text what is not there. 
And so we're going to allow the text through exegesis to simply speak for itself. We're going to pull out of the text the meaning and the truth that is already there. Charles Simeon, the late English preacher who died way back in 1836, he described expositional preaching and exegesis in this way. He says, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I might think is there. He says, I have great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. So this idea of expositional preaching and exegetical study is certainly no new concept to approach to the Word of God. So all that said, you might ask, why make such a big deal about these terms and how we approach in our uh, interpretive model and method that we're going to use to approach the book of Genesis. Why? Because there's a lot at stake. Because if we allow ourselves to deploy the improper interpretive method, we can fall on grounds of heresy. We can fall on grounds that would lead somebody astray in their understanding of God themselves and how they relate to this world. So it really is a big deal for us to get our interpretive method right to deploy the the proper hermeneutic in understanding this biblical account of the beginning of mankind. Again, I mentioned some of them before. Theistic evolution, the gap theory, the day-age theory. The list goes on and on of examples of how people have gone astray in their understanding of this book. They failed in understanding the proper interpretive method. So all those things are certainly a mouthful. Historical, grammatical, literal, exegesis, all these matter and we must be careful to understand how they relate to us and our understanding of Scripture. So what's the result if we do this? What's the result if we truly approach the book of Genesis in this way? What are we going to be able to accomplish? What are we going to be able to see and understand? We're going to be understand what? That there is a story of redemption, that there is a promised gospel, and that the hope of mankind is truly anchored in the person and work of Jesus, even in the book of Genesis. All right, so let's look at our first verse here this morning. Genesis chapter number one, verse number one. We can all quote it, I'm sure. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These four, first four words in the first verse of Genesis are the most significant and profound words that any of us right here in all the history of mankind will be confronted with at some point in their life. What is represented and stated in the reality of these first four words of in the beginning, God. He was there. He existed. Before you and before me and before the history of all mankind, there was a, there was a God, right? That's a big deal. And if he exists, and he does because he's revealed himself in Scripture, and he's made that claim to this in this first verse, in the beginning, God, 
If he was before and I am after as his creation, that means that I am now what? Accountable to this God for my actions and my life and how I live. Whether I recognize it or not, whether I fall under the submission of that reality, whether I stick my head in the sand and ignore it, it's truth. God exists. And he always has. He always will. So this leads us to then our formal introduction this morning to this book of Genesis. What do we know about Genesis so far? Who's the author of Genesis? Moses, right? Now, there's some conflict on that or some contradictions on that, but most conservative scholars and theologians will agree that, yeah, it was, it was Moses, right? So not, not too much to make of that. Moses is the author of this account in Genesis. Genesis is one book of a broader collection of works that is called what? The Pentateuch, right? That would be the Greek term for that book. What about the Hebrew term? What did they call it? The Torah, that's right. And you have the first five books of the Bible that make up this Pentateuch and this Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? So this is Genesis is the first book of the Pentateuch and the Torah. The Torah literally means in the Hebrew, it simply meant what? Instruction. Why? Because the Torah or the Pentateuch, they have legal, doctrinal, ritual customs outlined that formed the covenantal life of that day. This was the lifeblood of the faith and practice of the Hebrew culture, right? So in a technical sense, Genesis deals with creation, human history, and describes the patriarchal period of the people of Israel. And this book is going to end with the formation of 12 tribes living where? Where do they live? Where do they land? In, what's that? Yeah, Egypt, right? Yeah. So that's where they're going to land. This is, again, the, the broad brush overview of what Genesis is and what it's going to entail. So that's a technical sense. From a spiritual sense, we see this plan of the gospel unfold despite God's desire to be in perfect fellowship with his creation, Adam and Eve. We know that what happens, sin's ent sin enters, breaks fellowship and relationship, and God reveals to his creation the consequences of that sin, not just for Adam and Eve, but also for every generation to come. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So understanding Genesis then is critical to our understanding of what? The whole of Scripture, the Bible, God's Word. If we don't get Genesis right, we're going to fail in understanding really the whole of Scripture. Because there's so much foundational content and theology and doctrine that's wrapped up in this book of Genesis of understanding who our God is, who we are, and how we relate to Him. Genesis proclaims then who God is, who we are, how things went horribly wrong. And despite that, it tells us God's sovereign plan to make right what sin sought to destroy, namely our relationship with God. So Genesis is the source of all theology. So this morning, we're going to dive into some of these theological terms and these areas of theology that are represented here in this first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
there are a host of theological implications and doctrinal implications in this first verse of Genesis. And we're going to dive into some of that even this morning. So Genesis is the beginning of all theology. What does theology mean? It is the study of? It's the study of God. That's right. We'll also learn a lot about mankind, which is the study of anthropology. We'll learn a lot about sin, which is the study of uh, homardiology. We'll learn a lot about God's plan of redemption and salvation, which is soteriology. And at the end of the day, all major Christian doctrines have their foundation directly or indirectly in the book of Genesis. It's that big of a deal, right? So I want to set that stage of everything that we have in front of us, where we're going to be able to dive into the deep end as we start working our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, month over month through this book. We're going to see all of this unfold. Beautiful doctrine and theology and our understanding of God is going to deepen leaps and bounds by going through this study. That's our prayer. This morning, we're going to tackle just this first verse. But my prayer, my desire, is that we don't let the brevity, the shortness of that one verse, um, impact the significance of those words. In the beginning, God. So this morning, we're going to really tackle two questions that are represented in this first verse. The first question is this, who is God? The second question is this, what has he done. At the basic structure of verse number one, those are the two questions that we're going to answer. Who is God and what has he done? So in these four, these first four verses, or excuse me, first four words, we're going to answer the question, who is God? And it's going to help us understand the character and the nature and the personhood of God. So the first theological term that's represented here in these first four words is that we're going to look at the eternality of God. That God is eternal. What do we mean by this? Simply put, God is not bound by our concept of what? Time and space. This is what it means for God to be eternal. God is not merely an idea. He is an eternal being whom we can know and experience personally and has made himself known to us through the whole of Scripture. And I just love God in his sovereignty, how he kicked off his holy Scriptures by saying, in the beginning, God. He's making himself known to his creation. Lest they forget lest they come up with any other ideas. It is God and Him alone that existed before creation. So He announces, I am here and I want to be in relationship with my creation. So when we speak to the eternality of God, what are we stating? We're stating that He has always what? Existed. Pastor Josh Moody describes the eternality of God in this way. So God is not I was, or he is not I will be, but he is always the I am. And so before the, before the creation of the world, for all of eternity, God does not have a beginning. He does not have an end. He is above and beyond and through. And time is not something that binds him. And so God is eternal. 
We're going to see him proclaim that he is Elohim. He is Yahweh. He is the I am. He doesn't begin. He doesn't end. He is from eternity past, eternity future, above and beyond this concept of time. And this concept of time, it binds all of our realities as human beings. We have a beginning, your birth date. You have an end, your funeral. This is our understanding of our existence. A start and an end, a birth and a death. God is not bound by that time. Why? Because he is eternal. And so it's important for us to understand who God is in his eternality. God is, God is not bound and never will be bound and cannot be bound by this concept of time. Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. And ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 40, 28 says, have you not known Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God, making himself known in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1, he says, I am eternal in the beginning God. Secondly, we're going to look at the immutability of God. The immutability of God. This is the theological truth that states God never what? He never never changes. This is the immutability of God. Kevin DeYoung has described the immutability of God this way. He says, God is always being, never becoming. And these four words, in the beginning God, we see how the perfection of divine immutability sets the creator apart from his what? Creation. There is a distinction and a uniqueness that is brought about in these four words and it's encompassed in his eternality and his immutability. Therefore, we as his creation can certainly trust this God. Why? Because he is God. We are eternally secure in trusting in the promises of an eternal and unchanging God. Friends, this should anchor our faith. It should solidify us. It should cause resolve in our belief of who God is and who we are as His, as his children, as His chosen ones that we just learned about in Ephesians. This is who the God is that we serve and that has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He is eternal. And he is immutable, never changing. Psalm 102, 25-27 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The heavens are the work of this God's hands. And I am his, his child. That's beautiful reality. So the, the, the heavens are the work of your hands. He goes on, the psalmist, to say, They will perish, but you will what remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. This is the God that we believe and that we serve. 
in Scripture. Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So the question, or excuse me, the obvious question in verse number one is this. Who is the God in verse number one that is eternal and immutable? Again, there's a distinction and the clarification that's represented in these first four words, in the beginning God. He, meaning God, will not be relegated to a polytheistic idea of pagan man or some worthless idea of graven images, for he is God and he is God alone. He'll use the testimony of this book, Genesis, to proclaim through the histories of all mankind that he is that God, that he is Elohim, God. He is Yahweh, the Lord. This is who we're going to study, that we're going to know, that we're going to search after hard through this study of Genesis. So the Hebrew Bible has three names for deity, El, Eloah, and Elohim. We'll go on to observe that these variations are going to be used 2,750 times in Scripture to accentuate the uniqueness and deity of God. So friends, verse number one is crying out to all of mankind, all generations, past, present, and future, that he is the Elohim. He is Yahweh. He is the I am. Distinction and uniqueness. So we've answered the first question this morning of who is God. Secondly, let's look at and consider this final question. What has this God done? What has he done in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1? In the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. And these final six words of the first verse are also packed a host of theological significance. This God that is both eternal and immutable, that is not bound by time and that will never change, has created all things. The entire cosmos was brought into existence. It once didn't exist and because God created it, it now does exist. That's incredible. That's an incredible reality. The most brilliant minds of our day have to admit often that they really have no idea what the size and expanse of our universe is. The most powerful telescopes, the most powerful minds, the most deep and intimate human knowledge can't understand really the far reaches of the cosmos, but yet God made it. God made it. And that God that made all the heavens and the earth, He wants to be in relationship with this little feeble mind that can't wrap my, my mind around it. He wants to know me and He wants to save me. He wants to be in relationship with me. That's, under, that's unbelievable. When I consider the incredible work and wonder of creation, I can't help but be drawn to the reality that God is what? Omnipotent. He created the heavens and the earth. Those final six words draw our attention to this reality of the 
omnipotence of God. God can do all things consistent with his holy nature and will. Nothing can frustrate the accomplishment of his sovereign purpose. Roger Patterson has described God's omnipotence in this way. He says what? God is above his creation, not a part of it. And thus he is able to exercise full authority and power over it. Friends, just take a moment to just think about creation. Think about everything that our eyes and our minds can understand about creation. Think about your, your, your high school biology classes and understanding the, the beauty of DNA and molecules and the, the incredible uh, formation of the body and our organs. Think about how that life is sustained by his grace and his mercy. He created the heavens and the earth. Psalm number eight, verses three through four say this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the, mo- the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have no prerogative to be in relationship with God. Yet he chose us. He sought us out. He made a way. He redeemed us. He bought us back. He paid a ransom. He wants to know us and he desires us to know him. Jeremiah 32, verse number 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah 32, 27, just a few verses down, he goes on to say, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? The obvious answer, the God that has created heaven and earth, the answer to that question is a resounding what? No, there is nothing too hard for God. So friends, How does that change how I relate to this God? How does it change how I approach the challenges and the difficulties and the circumstances of tomorrow? How does it change ultimately how I understand suffering and difficulty and hardship in this life? Is anything too hard for God? Has He forsaken His servant? No. He's able. And He is a good God. And He has chosen us to be in relationship with him. So friends, it is God that has existed before all time. It is God that has brought the existence of all things that once did not exist into being. It is this God who was and is and will be the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last that has condescended and made himself known through creation It is on the basis of who he is, validated by this amazing and incredibly powerful work of creation, that he will make this claim and right to his creation. And although sin will tarnish it and ultimately break the fellowship of this great God and his creation, he will make a way through himself, 
through his son, through his blood, through an empty tomb, he will have his way. And although we see in the coming days and months the horrible impact of sin, we also see the glorious story of redemption as we journey our way through this book of Genesis. So friends, aren't you thankful that through Christ, I and you and we can know this God, Elohim, Yahweh, the great I am. This is, friends, the God of the Bible. This is the God of Genesis, and he wants to know you and be in relationship with you. In the beginning, God. He's eternal. He's immutable. He's unchanging. He's everlasting. This is the God that existed before all things. He didn't need us. He didn't need creation. He had perfect and beautiful harmony and fellowship in the person of the Trinity. What did he do? He chose to create. He chose to be in relationship. He chose to love. He chose to offer grace. He chose to deploy mercy. He chose to make a way and win over sin through the love of Christ. He did that for you and for me. And friends, this is the God that we're going to have the privilege and opportunity to know in unique and potentially new ways. Our prayer is this. As we look tomorrow, as we look at the days ahead, as we consider all the challenges and difficulties of a broken and a fallen world, and we seek to reconcile those challenges with the word of God, I pray that we will trust who God is, his character, his nature, his work. Why? Because he is the God of all things who created heaven and earth. And he is worthy of our trust as we sing, so I will trust you. King of creation, that song testifies. So I will trust in you. There is a truth throughout this text that will be proclaimed and it will demand a response. Who is God to you? Who do you believe him to be? Does it match up with what scripture says God is? And ultimately, do you believe what he has done and not just creation, but providing for us for our need of salvation? And if this God that can create heavens and earth, can he hold my soul, my heart, and my life for all eternity? Can I trust him with my salvation? The answer is absolutely yes. So no matter what you're going through this morning, let's be excited. Let's lean into the study of Genesis and let's for, look forward to what we're gonna learn about God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Thank you just over thousands of years that you sovereignly allowed your spirit to work in and through sinful men to record your truth that is inspired, it's breathed out, it's inerrant, it's out air, and we can place our complete faith and trust in it. So Father, I pray that as we as believers, Christ followers, disciples, as we desire to go out and to let our light shine before men, I pray that we would be equipped with your word to take hope, to take healing, and to take a message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves to a world that 
so desperately needs it. That we would be confident about these topics of gender and marriage and sexuality. That we would be resolved in our understanding of Scripture and our relationship with you to to trust and to believe and to know that that you did speak all things into existence. That we believe a uh, um, creation in a literal 24-hour day sense. These things are not popular, Father, and, and they're challenging to communicate in a world that is hostile to your truth. And so I pray that you would um, equip us even as elders as we desire to handle your word rightly and, and to do it carefully, that we would uh, be ministers of that gospel and to build up the church in, in love, that we'd be ready to give an answer of the hope that is in us. Father, we look forward in an expectant way to what you're going to do in and through this, this series and this study. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.